Hello and welcome to Concert Pipeline. I'm Steve Jones. Today on the program we have Vonda Shepard. Uh, I had a chance to talk to Vonda about her new album, Red Light, Green Light. Uh, we call it a new album and, and we'll get to why we can still call it a new album even though it came out last year. So it's her new album. Uh, definitely recommend checking that out. Uh, uh, Vonda is going to be at Feinstein's at the Nico in San Francisco on July 14th and 15th. So uh, you can get your tickets for either of those shows. See her in a nice intimate setting with uh, her, her band, piano, and playing some, uh, some of her songs from this new album as well as uh, over the span of her career. Um, we get into talking about Ally McBeal. Uh, she has a, uh, a wide history. She was very much a part of that show and, uh, and all of her music career and upbringing. We'll, we'll get to that in just a few minutes. Uh, before we do, I want to talk about a, a concert I went to the other night. This is Concert Pipeline, as I mentioned, and we try and share some concert footage when we can and stories. So. Um, I uh, had a chance to go to Blink-182 uh, at Golden One Arena in Sacramento, um, and I wasn't planning on it, uh, And uh, but I really wanted to. I, I mean, it's Blink-182 is great and a part of my youth, and uh, I'd gotten to meet those guys a couple of times, each of them. I met them all once at a, a signing for a radio station show, and then met uh, Travis, uh, well, no, I met Tom DeLong, uh, when he was playing with Angels and Airwaves, went in backstage at Warp Tour, um, and that was cool. He jumped into one of my interviews I was doing back in the day, uh, and, uh, and then Mark Hoppus, uh, actually got to hang out with for like an hour a couple of years back, um, when, uh, uh, they, he, Blink-182 played in Concord, and, uh, my buddy John is good friends with Mark Hoppus, and so he was able to hook that, that up, and we, we hung out with him for like an hour before their show. It was super cool. And so uh, so I really wanted to go see their show on this uh, reunion tour that they have with Tom DeLong back in the band, but ticket prices were astronomical. I mean, cheap tickets in the nosebleeds were like 175. And I'm like, I don't know, like I wanna be in the pit and those were going for 500 plus each. And I want to, I like seeing shows close, right? I like being there and being uh, connected to the music and up in it and, uh, and being able to take some good pictures and videos, bring back for the podcast, right? And that w wasn't looking like it was going to happen. But this was a rare Friday night that I uh, didn't have my uh, kids. And so I was just, I was looking, I was looking on Craigslist, seeing uh, who had tickets, who wasn't going to be able to make the show and how could I maybe get a ticket uh, without getting, you know, uh, taking advantage of uh, online, right? And then I was checking out Ticketmaster and they just while I was looking, dropped some seats behind the stage, starting out in the 200 section for $25 a ticket plus ticket charge. I'm like, oh, that's good. You know, I was looking at that. But then I was still looking at those Craigslist tickets. And then while I was looking at this, they dropped more tickets in the 100 section right behind the stage. Uh, and I'm like, okay, is and it said the viewers obscured. Am I going to be you know, able to see the show that there's, I know it's a uh, concert kind of in the round um, and Blink-22 runs all over the stage while they're, they're performing. Uh, well, uh, I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going, I want to, I just want to be at the show. Uh, so, uh, so I went to the show and I do not regret going. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun and the seats beyond the stage were, were actually really good. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I was front row, right behind the stage, was able to uh, see the show really well and, uh, and had a great perspective. And, uh, and 
this band pavement opened up for uh for blink 182 and i had uh, i hadn't seen them before but they put on a really great live performance also uh and so um in between op the opening band and pavement um i texted my buddy jay to uh just to let him know I, was, I went to the show and I had no idea that he actually happened to be at the same show as well. So I, uh, and he had tickets up in the 200 section. Uh, so in between bands, I went up to that section, uh, said hey to him and his wife, and then uh, and then carried on uh, back to my seat behind behind the stage. So uh, really, really enjoyed the show. It was a, lot, uh, a great live show with, um, you know, I mean, lots of pyros, techniques that, uh, and other uh, it, exciting pieces i mean they at one point raised travis parker the uh the drummer's uh um his platform up you know so it was so it was lifted but you can kind of get a sense for uh the angle that has out here and, and how close i was actually was so was i in the pit no but uh but i had a really great vantage point and uh and i thought the sound wasn't going to be very good from that angle either uh but it uh it actually was uh, I, I enjoyed the show a lot and it was great to see, uh, that they were able to kind of mend their, uh, some of the challenges that they had as a band with, uh, Tom having to step away, um, and do his own thing for a little bit. So it was a lot of fun. Um, I want to, uh, I want to play a couple songs from the show, um, here, uh, on the podcast. So let's play one now and we'll come back and play another one at the end of the program. So this is Blink-182's Feeling This from Golden One.
That was uh, Blink-182's Feeling This uh, from Golden One here in Concert Pipeline. And that takes us to our uh, main event here today. Again, I had a chance to chat with Vonda Shepard, uh, uh, a, really, a really great musician and a lot of fun to, to get to know and uh, hear her story through music. And, uh, and so let's go ahead and get into that. Let's bring Vonda on in. Yeah. Vonda, how's your, how's your day treating you so far? My day is, um, it's interesting. <laughs> It's been, well, last night I did an event, um, and so I'm kind of relaxing today. I did a big kind of important thing where I played um, a song. Diane Feinstein. Yeah. I, uh, what was Diane that? Diane Feinstein. Diane Feinstein. It was Nancy Pelosi, actually. Nancy Pelosi. I'm sorry. I already screwed up, so. <laughs> no, it's okay. So I did that um, last night. So today I'm kind of calming down from the intensity of the evening, you know. Tell me about it. How did that go last night? It was really moving. It was for the um, Feminist Majority Foundation and they had a gala. And um, this year is Ms. Magazine's 50 year anniversary, which is kind of exciting. And Nancy Pelosi was honored. And so I met her and um, played a song for her. She's from Maryland and I have a song called Maryland that I wrote. Uh, uh, so it was, it was really special actually. Yeah. Um, and so uh, tell me about the, how do you get in, into the event? Tell me how the performance went. Um, how did I get it? Oh, my friend is is an activist, and she 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 kind of roped me in. She's like, "Will you please please do this?" And I said, "Are you kidding? Of course, I would love it. It was an honor. It was great." Yeah. Do, yeah. do you get to do those sort of things often? Um, well, I try to. When I'm asked to do something like that, I try to say yes because even though it's out of my you know normal comfort zone, I think it's important to be to participate and help out where I can and lend my name and my, you know, my songs. And then also just personally to push myself to do something different. Cause I, I, I can just stay home and read my books and be just in my own world. So it's, it's good for me, you know, personally, emotionally, spiritually, whatever, to do different things. It's always good to step outside your comfort zone, right? Yeah. It's, I think it's good to grow as a person to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so let's go back kind of to, to the beginning. You're, you're, you were raised by your dad, right? Why? Yes, I was Steve <laughs> from the age of 10. Yeah. My sister, I have three sisters and we were all, my mom departed, not, you know, she's still here and we're very close. My mom, I love my mom, but yeah, my, my dad raised us from the time I was 10. Yeah. And so tell me about his influence on you musically. Like what, what were you, what was on in your household? What were you listening to as a kid? Um, it was the sixties. <laughs> my, my birth, my 60th birthday is, is uh, next week, basically. So, yes. yeah. So there were a lot of Beatles going on and some, um, Leonard Cohen and, um, not so much Bob Dylan, but he was, you know, floating around a little bit. Um, my dad and mom were beaten beatniks. So it was, it was nice kind of creative environment growing up. Yeah. Yeah. And so your dad did uh, mime work with Marcel Marceau? He did. He studied with Marcel Marceau and he studied with Marceau's teacher, Etienne Ducroux. And uh, so my dad was a was a mime in the 60s, 70s, and then he became a theater director. And so I grew up in a creative household, um, but he was not a musician, not just that, but he gave us all lessons. And I've been playing piano since I was six, you know. Yeah. Did you latch on to it uh, as a kid or did, was it something you pushed away from early on and kind of came back to? I, I, I pushed away from it as a kid, but I stuck with it nevertheless. 
thank goodness, you know, yeah. <laughs> because it was, um, I, you know, at times didn't have the greatest teachers. Um, and at times I did, but I kind of had to get through the, the difficult patches and like, I was extremely shy. So I had to do a, a recital when I was like seven and it was, it was the worst moment of my life. <laughs> oh no. Can you believe it? And I'm now a singer performer, you know, so it's weird. Yeah. Well, again, you step out of that comfort zone event, you know, and you, you did it. It's part of what makes you who you are, right? So, I think so. I'm going to put a book in front of my door because it's banging. One second. Sorry. Okay, no worries. Yeah, you're good. It's a little breezy here and the wind is knocking the door. Okay, I'm back. Hi. Okay. Okay. And, uh, and so at what point did you know you wanted uh, to be a musician? You know, I... I started writing songs when I was eight, believe it or not. I mean, full wow. songs that were very emotional, very fully realized. And um, I got my first gig. Well, we, we used to have house guests crashing on our couches. like, And one was a music journalist um, named Christopher Kathman. And he got me a gig at a tiny little club when I was 14, um, the Relic House in the Valley in LA. And I played there and there were, you know, 15 people in the audience or whatever. And I was very shy, but when I got on stage, I suddenly felt free and like free to let it all hang out. You know what I mean? And uh, and I realized that night, I, you know, up until that point, I wanted to be an astrophysicist. I was I was totally interested in science and, and astronomy, and that was the night I just went, "Oh, this is what I want to do," you know, forever. Yeah, yeah, and and so back, to, like the songs that you wrote when you were eight. What was the content? What did you write about? You know, did you? It's a little early for love and that sort of thing, right? So, I mean, I must have been from a past life because they're like heart wrenching, heartbreak songs that are just really like, yes, and they're lonely, they're full of loneliness and <laughs> and like longing for love, and, and just it makes you think, what the hell was going on? <laughs> you have a lot of ex life experiences at eight years old, huh? Eight, nine, ten, eleven, like all those songs are just there's a song called you fell apart that I wrote when I was 10 and it's like I came to you with a a broken heart I told you what I needed and you fell apart <laughs> I it, rhymes, it, it works right it works and it's like very direct and uh yes. yeah so I don't know I, I was born with a lot of uh emotion I guess and so yeah there you go and, and so after the show when you were 14, did you like have any bands that you joined in high school or people that you wrote music with uh, around that time? What was kind of that next step for you? I really just kept playing clubs with my own, you know, with my best friend. My best friend and I played the club, you know, for a few shows, a couple shows. And then when I was 16, I met... Uh, he was the drummer of Tower of Power and he brought in like a whole rhythm section you know, like funky bass player and a cool, and, and it, all of a sudden I had a full band and it was pretty exciting, you know, to hear the songs arranged and, you know, played out like that. Yeah. Um, some people preferred it when I played solo piano, you know, because it was, I wasn't overpowering my, my melodies on the piano, but it was exciting and fun. It's part of the whole journey. Yeah. What were some of the things you learned from that early stages of kind of making music with other people and kind of collaborating as a as a band? Hmm. It took me a while to learn so much of what I've learned now. Like I've come a long way. So back then, I don't I don't think I had a grasp on 
maybe what was the best approach. Um, I learned over the years how to be diplomatic with my band members, and that took a long time. Um, so just to sit down and and just this this is on another level besides music, just to be able to communicate, you know, well and be a diplomat um, took a long time, and now and that really helps in life a lot. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and uh, remind me, you grew up in LA. I did. I was born okay. in New York. Yeah, you're right. I was born in New York City, and when I was very little, we moved to LA. Mm -hmm. And uh, and tell me about that environment as a whole, kind of the culture of of being in uh, this entertainment industry and kind of finding your way in the uh, in that uh, that kind of area. Tell me what that was like for you. Um. Well, as far as my my parents go and the entertainment industry, that was just a wacky, you know, nutty kind of childhood having these, you know creative people staying with us. So that's that's one phase of it. And then um, growing up and just in clubs, I mean, I, I used to go out three nights a week, four nights a week when I was 16, 17, 18, and hear music. I'd hear any music, you know, I had these favorite bands, Kitty Hawk and Shelby Flint and Sumner. And these are bands no one would know mm -hmm. that, you know, it was 1979 or whatever. And I just, I would just immerse myself in music. Um, it was It was heaven. Yeah, and uh, and so kind of, did you take things from like their live live performances, the, those bands that you were a fan of, and to kind of incorporate into your onstage persona that you created? I think so. Yeah, there was a, a woman I've never talked about in an interview because I don't know why, but her name was Rainy. She had a band, so I was about eighteen, nineteen. I'd go see her, and she was you know white, but she belted it out, and she just let it rip. Like I, I would be pinned to my seat, you know. <laughs> I don't know where she is now, um, but she influenced me, I'd say, because she she showed me I could do that. And I had that in me and I, you know, I needed to have uh, permission to let it come out, I guess, you know. Did you ever get to meet her? Oh, yeah, we used to. Yeah. I, you know, I'd hang out after the show. We'd all like have a drink or whatever. Yes, I, I would do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you talked to her about kind of where that came from, that inner voice. No, no. I wasn't yeah. just just saying. Relationship. I didn't know her that well, but um, but I loved going and seeing her. Um, also, Shelby Flint was also a female keyboard player singer, and she had a very soulful voice. You know, yeah. When I was eighteen, I worked at a restaurant called the Great American Food and Beverage Company, and all the waiters and hostesses sang and played instruments throughout the night. And really, yeah, it was crazy. Uh, it was a huge restaurant, so there were about 40 employees, you know, 40 waiters, and, and we all were just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> we had a good time. <laughs> what, what a cool environment. <laughs> it was really fun, and, yeah. And so tell me about finding your voice as a, a musician beyond the instruments. Kind of how did you kind of develop your sound and, uh, and uh, what you wanted to kind of take into your, um, your artistry? It just happened, you know, organically. I would sit at the piano and whatever would, you know, kind of come out, what, who I was listening to influenced me, I'm sure, you know, the singer songwriters of the day, you know, I used to listen to Ricky Lee Jones, Joni Mitchell, um, James Taylor, Jackson Brown, all those 70s, you know, Paul Simon. And, and, and they all, I probably got filtered into my music, you know, aspects of them. But um, uh, then, you know, it was when I started working with Mitchell Froome, who's my husband and also producer of eight of my albums. 1999 he, around there you started? Yes. Yeah, okay. And he kind of identified the soul 
in my voice that he thought that that's where I shined you know even doing all of my own background vocals stacked up it's, it was a real part of my sound and he really encouraged that for my records and I, I like that and I feel comfortable in that zone you know yeah and, and, and so he's for oh go ahead no oh, I'm sorry go ahead well, you, I'll let you finish. You're, you're okay. the guest. <laughs> oh, no, you. Okay. No, no. you first. You first. Okay, we'll have okay. time for it all, trust me. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, and the other person who recognized that was David Kelly, who, you know, I did the show Ally McBeal with because, and, and he used a lot of 60s and, you know, soul tunes. And, and I just, that I felt very comfortable in that genre. Yeah. Um, so we'll get back to David, but let's uh, talk about Mitchell first, obviously. And I'm interested in kind of, working with him as your as your husband and uh, I mean he wasn't your husband when you started working with him but be, became that and tell me kind of about how you collaborate together we're like how you, uh, you he's he's obviously hasn't done anything too far wrong because you're allowed him to continue to produce your albums this this far into the game right 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 well I mean just so you know he was my favorite all-time favorite record producer and I used to sort of study his style I'd listen to his records and really dissect them. And so to, first of all, to meet him, when I met him, he actually played on my second album in 1990, uh, which wow. a lot of people don't know. He said he played on two songs on that album. That's where I met him. Um, Don Was was producing one song and David Pack another, and they pulled him in to play B3. And so we met and um, years later, um, we worked together many, you know, nine years later kind of amazing but yeah. I was a huge huge fan of his and um so the process is I'll play him a new song you know I'll be working on a song and I'll sit down with him and play him the song sometimes it's not done at all and he'll listen and he'll close his eyes and nod his head and and then he'll say and then he'll say play it again <laughs> I'll play it again and then he 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 sits down at the piano and starts playing the song exactly how I played it because he's a genius and he has perfect pitch. And it's pretty, pretty crazy to see that, you know, happening. And then, you know, he'll like uh, suddenly change one chord and the whole song sounds a hundred times better to me. <laughs> one chord, literally. Yeah. Uh, or he'll change a bass note or he'll add a bar of space, you know, and it just unfolds in before my eyes. And it's a, just a fascinating process to watch. And I love it. I'm really lucky. Yeah. Do you ever have any kind of anything that you push hard against in, when, in working with him? You're like, no, this is really the way that I see it. And it's, it's got to be this way. Or do you feel like there's really a, a solid balance? I There have been a couple. There were a couple of times, especially in the beginning, that we, you know, we didn't click. Um, there was a song called soothe me and he wanted to do it more of a soulful version with a band and um I did try it and in the end we went with the more piano vocal you know so so that's one one that I'm glad I kind of fought for because he's very very strong-willed <laughs> and it, it teaches me to be strong myself because if there is something that's really important to me I I know I have to stand up for it you know and that's yeah. That's good. But in general, most of the time, I'm pretty amazed by his ideas, you know? Yeah. Does, yeah. does he produce other artists too, or uh, do you two work pretty, pretty exclusively together? Oh, no. He's produced um, 170 albums, a lot of oh. which you might know. <laughs> Probably. Okay. I need to look at and listen to more of his stuff. So. <laughs> I mean, he produced the early Elvis Costello, oh. Richard Thompson, 
Crowded House, Paul McCartney, The Pretenders, the uh, Fleetwood Mac. I mean, not, you know, Fleetwood Mac was way later. Um, um, I, the list is very, very long, 170 albums, you know. It's huge. I mean, I'm sure it's just sometimes just sit down and hear the stories, you know, I mean, that's a great thing about, I mean, an outlet like this is getting to hear these stories from all these legends, you know, that, I, I mean, I talked to uh, an artist yesterday uh, whose dad was in the army with Elvis, you know. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and I'm just like, I, I, I never, it never gets old, right? And so, yeah, I'm no. sure being married to someone who has all those stories, right, is just as incredible. And you have your own, I mean, obviously like you can swap stories so. <laughs> and, and we know each other's stories pretty well now we've been together 24 years so we we know I get to hear his stories when we go to a dinner with other people and I go oh yeah I remember that story <laughs> yeah but no he's he's just an incredible record producer I'm and you know it's it's intense though because he's um he's got such strong ideas and I do have to sometimes I, you know, go with the feeling of the moment and go, does this feel right? You know, and usually it does, like I said. Yeah, yeah, man, that's cool. Um, so let's go back to David E. Kelly, because obviously that led to, you know, I mean, one of your biggest breaks uh, out there, right? And so um, it uh, it started with, um, it started with an album that you did. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the album. I'm trying to um, Oh, it's Good Eve. Yeah. Good, good Eve. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's Good Eve. It's Good Eve. Yes. Okay. And then so that kind of led to your job uh, with Adam McBeal. And so what did, what was it in It's Good Eve? Did he tell you kind of what it was that sold him on you being perfect for Adam McBeal? Well, let me give you a slight short backstory on It's Good Eve, which you're going to like. I think you're going to yeah. like. Um, some people already know this, but um, I used to sing backups for Jackson Brown. Um, and during that time, I at Soundcheck, I would play the songs from the album It's Good Eve. And Jackson came up to me once and said, if you can finish this album by next summer, you can open for me and sing with me. So um, he gave me his studio for a month, which is a you know world-class studio, free. He gave it to me for a month. I recorded It's Good Eve. And um, I ended up, so, so I was doing a gig in LA and I invited David E. Kelly and his wife to see the show. And um, he, he knew me and we were friends, but he just had an epiphany that night with you know the, the emotional tenor, timbre, whatever those good adjectives are, hit him uh, very intensely that this was the feeling he wanted for his show. So he pretty much used, he used almost every song on the album, It's Good Eve. And if it weren't for Jackson Brown, that album probably, it wouldn't exist in the way that it is, that it sounds. And so that's how the whole trajectory happened, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about the experience recording in Jackson Brown's studio also. Did it, was that like incredible also? Oh yeah. It was so yeah. incredible. Uh, he's just such a, he's such a philanthropist. He's such a good, good guy and a nice person and good friend. And, um, it was just, it was heaven working in his studio. And I was working with a great engineer, Julie Last, who had worked with Joni Mitchell. And my um, my ex, Michael Landau and I were co-producing. We brought in some of the most incredible musicians like Vinny Caliuta, um, Michael obviously played guitar, uh, and Jeff Young, who recently passed away. He was my keyboard player. So, um, you know, it was a beautiful experience. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
you mentioned Joni Mitchell. Um, you did. Uh, you mentioned Joni a couple of times, but you also um, did a uh, River with Robert Downey Jr. Oh yeah. And tell me, tell me about that experience. I mean, both there's two experiences there. There's Robert Downey Jr. and then there's Joni. But the, let's, yeah, uh, let's start start with Robert Downey and then tell me about Joni. Well, so the last season of Ally McBeal, um, Robert Downey Jr. was brought on to the show. He agreed to be on the show. And um, we did this album. I think that was on maybe the Christmas album. I don't remember. Um, or it was maybe on the last for once in my life. I don't remember. We did so many albums. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, um, it was, uh, he's a really, you know, deep person and um, excellent singer. And working with him was like working with any great singer songwriter, any good musical artist. It wasn't like an actor who sings. He he had a depth to him, yeah. and um, it was it was very intense in the studio working with him. He he got he got down into it. He got down up in there as my guitar player. <laughs> so um, I think he did a great job, and it was it was an honor to sing Joni's song. And I have to tell you this: I'm not trying to like brag, but. I was at my friend Julia Fordham's house at a dinner and um, Joni was there and I was sitting next to her and she said, I love the version with Robert Downey Jr. of River. She's like, that's my favorite version besides my own, basically. Wow. <laughs> fell off my chair and I was just like, thank you. I thought it means so much to me, you know? Did you even know she'd heard it? Like at that, at no, that point? No, I did not. I did not. <laughs> and that's the weird thing about being on national television and this is before computers and streaming, you know, this is 20 right. years ago. Um, so it was important when a show came on that was had, you know, an impact and, and people actually watched it and paid attention. There weren't like 700 TV shows. No, <laughs> you know, even low rated shows had astronomical ratings by today's standards, you know, sure. back, back then. And Ali McBeal was on for, for a good number, for a handful of seasons and it did well, right? So it did, it did very well. Yes. Yeah, people watched it. It was it was good. Yeah. And, and so when you get this opportunity for Ali McBeal, what is that like? What is it sold to you as, uh, you know, in terms of your involvement? Did it start with, OK, you're going to do the theme song for Ali McBeal and maybe a couple of other songs? Or is it like you are the, the music person for this show and there's going to be a lot of music involved? Oh, OK. Well, this is the funniest thing. I was living in New York. I had moved to New York and I was writing the album by 730. I wrote the whole album in New York for one year. And during that time, I get a, you know, I get a call from them and, and they say, we want you to record one song. They didn't say which song, but actually, no, wait, let me go back. Hold on. This is what they wanted me to record. Um, I think it was the song, Tell Him for the theme song of Allie Field. I think that was the original theme song choice. And my manager and I said, let's play him, you know, let's play the producers, my songs, because I wanted my own song in there. And we played five songs for them. And David Kelly and, and the whole crew gathered in a rehearsal studio in LA, played the five songs. And he said, if you can squeeze Search and Wessel into one minute, that can be the theme song. And so I, we did, we squeezed it into a minute, we recorded it. And, and I thought, okay, I'm doing the theme song for a TV show. I didn't know that I was gonna be on the show. I didn't know I was going to be on the cam on camera, uh, so they fly me in. We shoot the pilot. I record a couple other songs. Um, Pearl's a singer, I think, was on the pilot, and it was gorgeous. And he used Hemisphere, I think, in the pilot, one of my songs. And 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 then here's what happened. 
I get a call from the wardrobe woman and she says, we need you to come in for a fitting because we're going to be seeing a lot of you. <laughs> so I found out through the wardrobe woman, I didn't even have a contract, you know, normally you have a, like a major contract. Yeah. I was getting pretty scale, you know, <laughs> like at yeah. scale, scale. And she said, we're going to be seeing a lot of you. And I'm like, you are? Uh, okay, I better move to LA. So I moved, <laughs> I literally moved from New York like two weeks later to LA and we started shooting episodes and it, it took off. We won the Golden Globe that year and everything exploded into craziness. Wow. And I mean, like, so I, I read you produce over 500 songs for the, you know, for Ally McBeal. I mean, that's astronomical in any musician's, you know, kind of work. Like, and not to mention, I mean, the, the truncated time that you're doing is what is that like for you to just be so involved? Is it? Is it like a, and I, and I ask this also from like a TV show creation, is it like, okay, you were with one artist one week and then another artist the next week, that sort of thing? What, what was that experience? It was, it was the most insanely intense, busy um, time I can ever imagine. I can't really imagine doing it at this point in my life, but what would happen is I would get the script, I would read the script, I'd see three or four songs written at the bottom and the guest artists Sometimes it would be like Vonda sings this, Vonda, this and that. And, and two days later, we'd go in the studio with my insanely good band. So I've had the best musicians around me and they're a huge part of why we could work quickly, you know? Yeah. yeah. Symbiosis, we had. I also had this kind of feeling of understanding of what David Kelly was going after for the show. So it was not like complicated for me to capture that in music. Um, so it was a really symbiotic connection. And um, we'd go in the studio. Sometimes I'd send the songs the night before, but I wanted to work with them because I knew what I wanted to do, you know, arrange the arrangements, the vibe, play the song through a few times, and then we'd grab it. We'd, we'd record like three takes, listen together, <laughs> choose a take, do a couple guitar overdubs. I'd put on three or four vocals that we'd comp later. And then we'd have lunch, then we'd cut another tune, same way. And by, you know, dinner time, we'd have three songs cut. What? None, none of the vocals comped, none, none of the, you know, we we would have done a lot of the overdubs instantly, like quick, put on our B3 part, put on a string section you know, or a string part. That night after dinner, I'd comp all my vocals on each song, which means if people don't understand what that means, I do three or four takes, choose the best lines from each. And so we comp one, that would take an hour and a half. Next one, comp the next one, comp the next one. And then sometimes we'd even have horns arriving at 8 p.m. and we'd throw horns on there. It was it was it was an insane schedule, but we did it. It's, it's crazy. And then how much of that is like then brought on camera for you because you were they, they said to her the wardrobe person said they're going to be seeing a lot of you. So then do you take how often did you take the song and kind of have to kind of make a music video of it of sorts or you know kind of translate it to to the the show. Every single week, I would. Oh my God. So, say I did, say I was in two songs, I'd have to learn the comp, which means I'd have to memorize all the vocals. And because we lip, I lip synced. So, I wasn't singing live on the set. I was yeah. singing to the, the tape. So, I had to memorize all those soul licks that I did off, like, you know, off the cuff. And <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Real. And we'd film the entire song, sometimes five times, 10 times on the set. And then they'd sometimes only use 30 seconds, but we would record the entire song and we would film the entire song, which is why we were able to have four albums 
soundtrack albums because we had yeah. the whole song recorded, which was smart. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. So it was, yeah. it was really exciting, as you can hear by my voice. It was just thrilling, you know, hard work, though. Oh, for, for sure. And um, and some of the artists that you got to work with on there, and then we already talked about Robert Downey, but uh, Randy Newman, and you you worked with Randy Newman later again uh, as well, you know, in a, in a play, it did Feels Like Home, right? So like you've worked with him a couple of times? I have worked with him, and Mitchell has been producing Randy Newman for over 20 years. So I'm wow. also friends with him. You know, not we're not close. My husband is really close friends with him. And yeah, I mean, he didn't need a lot of help in the studio in terms of- I mentioned. I kind of let, I stepped aside somewhat. He was, he's such a <laughs> just brilliant artist, like a, a national treasure, international treasure, you know? Yeah. And and what was working with him on the play like? What remember the name of the play? He wrote a play called Faust. It's Randy Newman's Faust. And um, yeah, it was in New York. And, and I, it was, it was on, a, it was like, it was Broadway shows that, were revived on a program called um, Encores Off. And so it was only a couple of performances. It was, but it had, you know, it was exciting. It was getting up on a Broadway stage, you know, and um, working with him was just an honor. And, uh, and I never do musical theater. So, and it was written like songs, but also acting. So it was, yeah. it was good and got some great reviews. And people were saying, oh, Broadway is ready for you, Vonda. You know, I was just like, I'm ready for that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what about Bon Jovi? Uh, what, what was it like working with Bon Jovi? <laughs> Rock star. <laughs> yeah, right? Between Bon Jovi and, uh, let's see, Barry Manilow. <laughs> you yeah. know, I was going to say something I'm not going to say. Um, <laughs> Barry, Barry was very, very picky in the studio, but he ended up like, it was like a love fest by the end of the day. You know, we all... Yeah it worked out really well but with John 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 definitely you know knew what he wanted in the studio and you know it's funny being a woman produce a female producer and um I think I got I got some respect but I had to I had to earn it for some people let's just say you know yeah yeah it's fine yeah were there any artists that you really respected for that you kind of worked with on Ali McBeal that you got to work with again later uh, obviously outside of Randy Newman and his friendship um, let me try to think. Um, I'm blanking on that right now, but I will say that when I was 16, the Bell album, B-E-L-L-E album with by Al Green was was one of my top three albums, and I listened to it every single day. And suddenly, this is these are the things that would happen on Ally McBeal. Suddenly I'm working with Al Green. I'm producing him. He walks in and there's the legend Al Green and with his big smile and um we, you know, I hear that voice in the studio and I hear the laugh. We did a duet together. So it was magical. It was yeah. Yeah. I'm sure your mind was blown and you're like, this is like, this is my childhood. Did you, did you fan out on Emma at all? And kind of be like, I listen to your album so much as a kid. I, I did. Yeah. I, I like to tell people when I like them because it's, just, it's not, yeah. a, you know, I don't, I don't totally overwhelm them with my, you know, I don't ask for autographs or anything. Yeah. You know who's a who was an intense one was Sting. You know, like you know Sting walking in the studio. I'm like, how many times when I was in my 20s did I listen to what was the what was the album? Nothing like the sun or. Okay, I think I think so. It's been a while. <laughs> it's been a, yeah yeah I'd have to pull that one out too. So yeah. But yeah, it was but, working with legends and, yeah. and incredible people. It's great. 
Yeah, no, that's that's really cool. And and so then after uh, Ali McBeal, like, I mean, did you, what was your kind of mindset in terms of those next steps in, in your career? Did you like, oh my gosh, I was running a marathon for the past X year, you know, years of the, the series and I, I need to do something different or were you getting uh, sought after for other shows? Okay, well, about six months before the end of the season five of Ally McBeal, um, I, I had a, I was sensing that it was coming to an end. Um, and I started writing a ton of songs because I knew that when it ended, there was going to be this like gaping hole, like a quagmire I was going to fall into if yeah. I didn't have a project. So um, I started writing the album Chinatown and um, I did finish it, uh, record it at the end of the show. And it came out in 2003, I believe. And I hit the road. I went straight out on the road to Europe. And because there was definitely something missing suddenly, you know, like with my yeah. time. And that was a good move. That was a really good move. Um, so I did Chinatown, did did well with that. And then I just kept writing. I had and then I had a, a, a baby, my son. <laughs> yeah. 2003. So I was gonna ask, you didn't have any kids during uh, Alan McBeal phase, right? There's just no time. <laughs> no, I didn't have I didn't, there was no time and I wasn't married to anybody. I didn't have a boyfriend. I was just obsessed with my work and I didn't, I wasn't seeing anybody uh, except that I started seeing Mitchell but toward halfway through. But um, yeah, so uh, just kept touring and kept making records. When I, even when I had my son, I would go on the road and he had his first birthday in Austria. So I definitely uh, was a bit of a workaholic um, and um, kept making the records and the new record it came out less than a year ago I call it the new record still it's red light yeah. green light and I'm still out there promoting it and playing and playing the songs yeah after all that you work that you did with, uh and the pace that you kept with Ellen Field you can call it record new for a year or whatever you know <laughs> like you can take take a slower pace you've earned it right so <laughs> yeah one year actually equals three years so you know or, or, or the other way around something like that but yes thank you <laughs> Of course. Uh, yeah. So, so tell me the process of, uh, of making Red Light, Green Light. Like, how did you uh, kind of change your approach with uh, with this album? Um, well, with Red Light, Green Light, it was the pandemic. OK, yeah. so it was I had done Rookie, the album Rookie, a few years before. Mm -hmm. And I was really feeling a need to have new music to play live, like music to give the, uh, the show a burst of energy and inspiration. So it was good motivation. And then, you know, kind of had no excuses. I had the pandemic and I just went in. I have a pub at my house. It's, we call it the pub. There's a little piano oh. doors. It's, it's really, it's really cool. Um, so I go in the pub and I would just play and write. And it was, it's hard. Writing an album is so arduous and it's most, mostly it's editing. If you want it to be good, it's mostly editing. And it's, it's, it's hard, you know? Yeah. I didn't know if I could do another one after Rookie, and and I'm so glad I did because I love a lot of the songs on this album, and it gives me a great feeling to play them live. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so you have a tour. Uh, you, I mean, you're calling it in in some places like your 60th birthday tour. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, in a sense, what? Yeah, in a sense, right? You you put that out online, so <laughs> I did it. It's my fault. <laughs> yeah, uh, and. 
And so uh, you're, you're hitting the Bay Area at the Nico on uh, July 14th and 15th. Uh, fine signs at the Nico. And uh, t have you, tell me about times you've played the Bay Area before. I have, and I've played Feinstein's many times. I play the one in New York as well, but I've played the one in, in San Francisco probably eight times. And I love it because it's so intimate and uh, there's a piano, a real piano. And, and it's just, it's just like a living room environment, you know? So I can see the faces, people yell out songs sometimes. Um, and I'm gonna play a lot of the new album, but I'm gonna play songs favorites from all of the other albums and then a few, uh, you know, a handful from Allie McBeal toward the end of the set, because that's like some people, that's the only way they know me, but it's been 20 something years. So now people know the other stuff as well, so. Do you have covers that you like to play? Or? Um, I like to play You Belong to Me. That's one of my favorites. It just feels like, it feels like I wrote it even though I didn't because I've sung yeah. it so much and I connect with it so much, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and you still keep up with Calista? You're good friends with her? I am, yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah. you went to a concert with her uh, recently, I saw, right? I did. Maybe I made that up. No, <laughs> no, no. Okay, if maybe. Did, if I did, I forgot. My memory is horrible right now. <laughs> like these it's days. fair. It's fair. We'll agree to leave that wherever it lands. <laughs> we, uh, went, we went to see Shania Twain together about 25 years ago. Does that count? Okay, so, <laughs> yeah, that's that's recent. You know, that works. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, so tell me about kind of uh, the tour. Is it just you and the p uh, piano, or do you have a full band? I'm bringing the full band. Um, I'm bringing my guitar player of, he's played with me now 21 years and he um, actually almost 22 years and he played with Tina Turner for 22 years, James Ralston. Mm. So, um, you know, obviously that was kind of a heavy loss, um, but I'm bringing James, he's a fantastic guitar player. I'm bringing Jim Hansen on bass who played with Johnny Cash and Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> excuse me. I'm bringing, for the first time, he's a new drummer. I'm borrowing Crowded House's percussionist who also plays drums because Mitchell, my husband, is in the band Crowded House. Um, oh, really? The last three years, yeah. So we're borrowing Paul Taylor um, on drums and he's, he's gonna be great. It's gonna be a blast. That's, that's awesome. Um, and you recently, back in February, played Germany and France also. I mean, what were those, what were those shows like? Oh, I love going to Europe and my U.S. fans get really pissed off at me. They're like, why don't you ever play Kalamazoo? <laughs> no, I just, I have a special thing for France. I, I studied French in, in school for three years and I spent the summer there when I was 16. And so it's really nice going back to France. Um, those shows were just phenomenal. We played Belgium, we played uh, the Netherlands, we played Germany and France. And in October, we did the U.K., and those were my first big tours since the pandemic. So it was just incredible. It was, I loved it. I really appreciated it after having been away for three years. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, and I know you said you didn't know that you had this album in you, but kind of being at this point now, do you see another album kind of coming around the corner uh, down the line? I mean, there's no rush or anything, <laughs> but do you see, I mean, where are you, what headspace are you in in terms of kind of continuing to make music? Steve, you're always on my back about this. Come on. I know. God, seriously, come on. Look, I heard you could do like three songs a day. Like, come on, you should have an album night next week, right? So, um, well, well, to tell you the truth, I actually am working on some songs and I'm 
I'm recording them on my iPhone, just the ideas. And I'm, I'm taking it easy with the songs. I'm just getting them down. And then the, that hard editing process is in my yeah. future. And it just, it's going to take a decision because the songs are starting to arrive. You know, it's like, it's going to be a decision to, to sit for the hours and hours it takes to go through them and find the best parts and then have the guts to play them for Mitchell <laughs> without yeah. going, he's going to say, that sucks, <laughs> which he would never do, no, no. But, you know, in your head. Um, and, and I think there will be another album. And part of me wonders if I should just do a solo piano vocal album with new songs. But then the other part of me thinks I should do a whole album with really super funky, up-tempo, positive songs. So I, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be. Maybe a split, you know? So yeah, it could, could work. Yeah. Have you have you thought about writing a book at any point? Do you, Does that ever cross your mind? Because you have so many stories and experiences. Yeah, I have thought about it. And I have about 150 journals I've kept throughout my life. So I have the actual vivid memories documented um oh, that's awesome. i don't know if it would be really boring though for someone to read. <laughs> cathartic and uh, for you right it's just like to be able to yeah. truncate you know like i don't know 1500 pages down to, uh, yeah. to a couple hundred and kind of relive those experiences right so it might be a good idea um and when you write when you think about writing a book you have to decide how much you want to put out there you know about you know and, and it's a touchy one um and I, I'm not like a, a gossip. I don't like to talk badly about people. So the, yeah. the, the book might be really boring. But, um, um, you know, my friend Susanna Hoffs just wrote a book. I don't know if you heard about it. It's no. called, called This Bird Has Flown. And it got like amazing reviews. And they're making a movie of it. So, And it's loosely based on her life. It's fiction, but it's, you know, you see the, you see the uh, der derivation of some of the book. It's great. Did she know when she was writing it that it was going to be turned into a movie or does this oh. just happen soon? No. Oh, yeah. um, and her husband is um, Jay Roach, who directed yeah. Meet the Parents, Meet the Fockers, all the Mike Myers movies. And she got a she got a deal for a movie like that. And he's like, this is unfreaking believable that this <laughs> happened because it's so hard to get this going. So yeah. she's I don't I don't know who's in the movie. I haven't talked to her in a, in a few weeks, but yeah, it's pretty cool. I'm excited for her. That's exciting, yeah. Your life story could be turned into a movie. You never know, right? So you got you got you got to have some dirt there. You got to dish some dirt, I think, <laughs> to make, um, make it make it really exciting. But you know, that's really cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, Vonda, thank you for for taking the time today. Uh, I mean, like I said, you have, you have so many stories, and it's great been great to just even scratch the surface with with all of them. And, yeah. um, and I'm, I'm sure you're excited about the tour. Uh, do you have any fun plans for the milestone birthday, which we don't have to put a number on? Um, we already have. <laughs> it's so funny. I was going to plan a little party and because Mitchell's birthday is also tomorrow, a big one for him as well. Um, but we both just were like, nah, <laughs> no, this is not. Um, yeah. Oh, one thing I want to mention, though, just so in case I forget, I just put out yeah. Put out red light green light on vinyl and i'm bringing it to the gigs so if anyone wants to pick it up they can they can grab one there and um and i hope that i hope people come to the shows because they're going to be really fun yeah that's that's awesome well congr congratulations on that as well and uh, um and happy early birthday i'll say to, uh, to you so i hope the tour goes really well and uh, um and that the uh, the next phase is uh, is just as exciting so thank you so much and to you too and it's great chatting with you Thank you. Hey.
That was my interview with Vonda Shepard here on Concert Pipeline. That takes us to the final segment on the program, the music news. just a couple stories to wind us out here today on the uh the program um i'm going to start with one uh, about madonna she postponed her celebration tour uh after intensive care hospitalization her health is still improving however she is under medical care uh she was supposed to embark on a massive 40th anniversary celebration tour next month which would have kicked off in vancouver british columbia uh on uh, july 15th um there was a stop in the bay area i think as well and it went up through into october um hitting london and uh and europe and now a statement from her manager uh says that she did uh, developed a serious bacterial infection uh, which led to a several day stay in the icu her health is improving however she's under medical care full recovery is expected um, and at this time, they're pausing all commitments, which include the tour. Uh, they're sharing more details when they have them, as well as a start date for the tour and for rescheduled shows. But right now, if you think you have tickets to Madonna, you probably do not. Uh, you should get a refund at the uh, point of purchase. Um, last week on the program, we talked about a unique gift that uh, Pink received on stage. Someone threw their mother's ashes in a bag, a uh, Ziploc bag, uh, up on the stage and Pink saw it and said, is, is this your mother? Uh, and, um, and well, she got a better gift uh, at, a, at a, her recent show. It was a giant wheel of brie that uh, someone gave her mid-concert. I don't know what it is with giving Pink unique gifts, but apparently the, the people are getting creative uh, and it went over better than the human ashes. So uh, she's getting some strange gifts. Um, and so this this brie uh, I, uh, there was a video taken from her show at Hyde Park in London over the weekend and she could be seen interacting with concert goers at the edge of the stage smiling and giving air hugs to fans in between belting out lyrics uh, and she bends down to take an offering from the crowd a circle of brie de mieux which she hugs uh, close to her chest and mouths I love you hmm. big fan of brie huh okay so she was happy to be the recipient of the delicious dairy product which is more than can be said about that other gift that she received uh, uh, more recently. And hopefully the ashes got back to the proper person. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Fallout Boy. Uh, they actually did a, a cover. Um, they updated Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire in a cover that name checks uh, Taylor Swift and more. It also mentions several musical icons which have died since the original version was released in 1989. Um, and uh, this was the uh, that song was the number one song in the Billboard Hot 100 uh, the week Taylor Swift was born in December of 1989, uh, and she was name checked in the song. Um, and so let, let's see some of the references that they uh, that they that they talk about. I think they talk about Kanye West. Uh, it's a fast moving new cover. It includes uh, Kurt Cobain, Michael Jackson, Prince. And Woodstock 99, Firefest, Black Parade, uh, by, uh, My Chemical Romance, and YouTube Killed MTV. Uh, so lots of lots of references in their cover. And of course, you can check video of that out online. Um, Brian Setzer uh, has announced Rockabilly Riot Tour. Uh, he's, uh, he's confirmed a 12-day fall tour coinciding with a new solo album due in the upcoming months. 
uh, more details coming soon on that. And these are his first live shows uh, in over four years. Um, it's going to kick off September 27th at the Count Basie Theater in Red Bank, New Jersey. Includes stops in Nashville, uh, uh, Chicago, Cincinnati, Minneapolis, uh, and tickets are coming, you know, on sale or going on sale pretty soon. He says, I've had a pretty long break and I needed it. I'm re uh, renewed and really want to play live again. I just want to get out on the road with this kick-ass little three-piece band and start playing. Uh, so uh, the, his set list is going to include some of the favorite covers he's doing now. Uh, I haven't recorded it, but I really like playing his uh, my version of Georgia on my mind. And then with the band, I want to play a new song, Girl on the Billboard, because it tells a fun story. Uh, so a uh, handful of shows there um, in the Midwest area, um, none out here on the West Coast uh, at this point. Um, and then our final story, we do like to end with uh, a story from Dave Grohl, if we can. Uh, Foo Fighters covered Michael Buble's Haven't Met You Yet on tour as Dave Grohl made up his own lyrics, uh, rather, uh, his rather his own rather naughty lyrics and he danced along. So uh, they're uh, performing silly cover medleys on tour and playing through snippets of Michael Buble's Haven't Met You Yet, uh, which he re refuses to learn the lyrics to, which is awesome. Uh, and uh, so uh dave Grohl. let's see what do we got here their rendition has been taking place during the band's cover melody on their ongoing summer tour which also includes beastie boys uh sabotage devo's whip it and nine inch nails march of the pigs uh and Grohl and company can be seen playing through a jaunty the jaunty number as the front man stands up at the front of the stage looking amusingly confused waving his hands in the air and making his own lyrics up about how he refuses to learn the track he sings I don't know the fucking words. I don't know the song. You might know it, but I fucking don't. I was supposed to practice it, but I fucking don't care before muttering some unintelligible lines about how they're only performing the song to introduce the audience to their new drummer, John Freese, who of course they haven't met yet. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, exciting times. Looking forward to seeing Foo Fighters in August when they come to Lake Tahoe. We're going to close this out with one more song from Blink-182's uh, set at Golden One Arena in Sacramento. This is All the Small Things. For all of us here at Concert Pipeline, I'm Steve Jones. We'll catch you next time.